You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. It's good to be with you. Um, and I want to acknowledge it is weird and awkward that we're all somewhat socially distanced and wearing face masks. Um, I think that contributes to all the uncertainty in general that we're living in right now. Um, it's tempting in the midst of the uncertainty to try to grasp onto things that make us feel in control. And often that is um, our posturing of self-righteousness. Because um, it feels like something we can control, whether, whether it's about masks or because we're constantly thinking, am I too far from somebody as I'm talking to them? Am I too close? What are they thinking? And sometimes we just swing right into sitting in our own self-righteousness about whatever it happens to be. And the good news for us is that this morning Jesus is talking to us, talking to people who struggle with self-righteousness. We're looking at a passage that is familiar to many of us, if you've grown up in the church, or even if you have just paid attention to what is said about Christianity and the culture broadly, you might have heard this story. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we're in Luke 18. We're going to look at 9 through 14. You can read it along at home. You can read along in your Bible or listen um, to God's word. Uh, So this is God's word. Let's hear it with our hearts. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would meet us this morning. You promised to use your word to speak to us. So we ask that you would keep your promise. This word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that anointed Jesus, the same spirit that has dwelled for all of eternity with you and the Son, the same spirit that lives inside of Christians and melts our hearts and causes us to love you more and to know your love, we ask that he would speak to us this morning from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I lack social interaction. Now, I'm about to get a whole lot more social interaction because um, the university starts tomorrow and I'm going to be trying to meet people in a socially distanced way. 
But I lack social interaction, and unless you're a frontline worker, my guess is you do too. And with my lack of social interaction over the last six months, like many of you, though I hope not all of you, I've spent way too much time on the internet. Reading articles, doing research. Now, I realize that some of you do actual real research because you're researchers by trade, or you're a PhD student, or you have your PhD, and you know what that's like. I know I really don't do real research. But also read too much time, have spent too much time reading social media posts. And almost every internet article or social media post is beckoning me and pulling me from the inside to make a stance about something, signal that I'm on the right side of an issue. Whether it's something about racism or injustice, COVID strategies, wearing or not wearing masks, social distancing appropriateness, whether schools should or should not start, whether the NBA should have Black Lives Matter on the courts where in the NBA bubble, um, whether anything on the internet should be censored, whether or not statues should be torn down, whether or not, or what political figures that I should support. And even though I read this list earlier in the earlier service and I made up the list, my heart rate begins to rise as I think about it, as I read it, because those are the things that are calling for some response from me and making me anxious. And even if that's not your list, you have a list of things that are called out to you that pull you in that want you to, to signal that you're on the right side, that I'm on the right side, the right side of history, morality, the economy, epidemiology, the battle against racism, the orthodoxy of the church, you and I are tempted to draw our line in the sand and to declare that I, what I believe is right and then view other people with skepticism and distrust. With so much of our lives lived on the internet right now, when we don't see each other face to face, I am tempted constantly to signal my virtue to the world. And my guess is that you're in a similar place. Dictionary.com, which is actually not a bad dictionary, defines virtue signaling this way. The sharing of one's point of view on a social or political issue, often on social media, in order to garner praise or acknowledgement of one's own righteousness, interesting religious language, from others who share that point of view or passively rebuke those who do not. But it's not just the internet. We see it in the physical world, too. We see it in signs that we or other people put up in their yards. We see it on bumper stickers. We see it in signs and windows. We see it in what we wear, other people wear. It's everywhere. But it's not just out there. It's in our inner circles as well. My guess is if you're like me, you're tempted to signal your virtue to the people that God has put you in daily relationship with. Brittany and I have been married for just over 12 years by a couple of weeks. And even after 12 years, I'm still tempted to signal to her why it's good for us to still be in relationship rather than actually being present with her, rather than allowing myself to vulnerably be loved by her and all of my brokenness. Even though she knows my brokenness and sinfulness, I still am tempted to perform and virtue signal to her. My guess is if you've been married for very long, that's, one of you has struggled with that. Now, I realize that not all of us are married, but we're all in relationships with parents, with siblings, with roommates, with coworkers, 
And we're tempted to signal our virtue based on things like the jokes we tell, based on what we're willing to not talk about in conversation. Kids in the room, sometimes it's based on what you are going to talk to your friends about, like Pokemon or Legos or... Um, insert your own favorite. What, what's that? Fortnite. Fortnite, yes. That's the other one that I had listed that I didn't write down. And Minecraft. My kids are really into Minecraft right now, so they'll talk to anybody about Minecraft. So whatever signals that you are, are, are right and you're on the right side, that you are cool, that you are good, and it's good for you to be in relationship with this person because you know the right things to talk about or the right things to wear, whatever signals that you are righteous, you want other people to see it. We want other people to see it. And the human heart is always tempted to virtue signal. But the dangerous thing about virtue signaling is that it, it makes us develop this trust in ourselves that we are right in the world. Over and over again, Jesus rebukes this attitude in the scriptures. He says things like, don't stand on the corners, street corner, and pray like the Pharisees. At other times he says, don't, be, don't go like the Pharisees and clunk your money in the offering urn so people see how generous you are. At one point he calls people like that whitewashed tombs, clean and put together on the outside but dead on the inside. He warns that virtue signaling is a danger to our souls. But virtue signaling, what the Bible and Christianity called self-righteousness doesn't just reveal yours and my view of ourselves. It affects our view of other people. And in this morning's parable, Jesus ties these two together. Look at verse 9. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then what? Treated others with contempt. When we pack all of our understanding of our right standing in the world, into our actions and words and views, and we pack all of our value of someone else into our perception of their actions and values and views, we judge them harshly, particularly if they don't meet our standard. Just walk into any middle school cafeteria, if those ever open. Just walk into or onto Zoom to a Tucson City Council meeting or into somebody's Thanksgiving dinner. People treat each other with contempt if they don't signal the right virtue. The Greek word for contempt, and I don't often bring Greek into sermons, but it's interesting here. The Greek word for contempt literally means to despise and view as worthless or having no value. Now, I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I do want to say it as an aside. That's what cancel culture is. It's seeing somebody as no value and despising them and saying, you're not worth anything. I'm holding you in contempt. Christians do it. We've done it throughout history. Non-Christians do it right now as well. Anytime there's some version of self-righteousness, cancel culture arises. And it's all over us right now. We do it when we trust in ourselves that we are righteous. So often we're tempted to trust ourselves that we're righteous and in turn treat other people with contempt. And that's virtue signaling at work. But the good news is that Jesus is talking to virtue signalers in this passage. He hasn't canceled us. He's still speaking to us because he loves us. So what's up with this parable? Well, the setting of the parable is the temple. So let's talk about the temple. 
Twice a day in the morning and in the late afternoon, people would gather at the temple for the twice daily atonement sacrifice that God commanded. There would be this whole liturgy and litany of psalms and hymns being sung, corporate prayers of confession and thanksgiving. And then at a certain point, the high priest would go back deeper into the temple to offer the spotless lamb as a sacrifice. For the people, this was a symbol or a signal from God that all their sin and rebellion had consequence, that it kept them from God, that its consequence would ultimately lead to death. The sacrifice of a lamb painted a picture of that consequence for them. But it also paints a picture for them that the blood of another would be their substitute. They're to daily come in faith and trust that God, by his grace, covers and forgives their sins and makes them righteous. When the high priest goes back, the people would pray additional prayers. And the way they would pray out loud is... I mean, the way they would pray would be out loud. We often pray quietly, especially in Presbyterian circles. But they would pray out loud, and they would speak out loud, and that's the context where we meet these two men. So who are these two men? The first is a Pharisee. In the world that he lives in, he signals all the right virtues. He, in the U.S., in the 80s and the 90s, would be the moral majority. This gives him the social, relational, and at least locally, the religious political power of society. In so many ways, Pharisees were orthodox. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in God's holiness. They believed that God's law was important, all things that Christians today would affirm. So what does Jesus say about him? Look at the first part of verse 11. We're going to kind of slowly go through this. It says, it starts with saying, standing by himself. Everything that he is doing, that Jesus is saying he's doing, is signaling to other people for them to see what he values in his virtue. Even how he stands of being, shows that he wants to be protected from possible uncleanness. But at the same time, him being set apart, he's not far off. He's still close enough where people can hear him, maybe so he can teach them about virtue from his own life and prayers. So let's listen in, listen in to what he's signaling. Verse 11 continues, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. He's signaling to God and to the other people who are there around him what righteousness does not look like by signaling what he's against. This is like bumper stickers that say, dump Trump, or social media posts that, say, that decry social justice warriors. But then he describes and prays what his view of righteousness is. Verse 12 continues his prayer. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, God's law required people to fast out of faith once a year on the Day of Atonement, where they are celebrating and remembering God's mercy. And they're supposed to fast for that day to remember his mercy. But the Pharisee does even more. He then describes how he gives of his resource. Now God required people to give of their resources to care for the temple, for the poor, for the priests in the forms of wine and wheat and oil. The Pharisee Pharisee says he does even more. 
He's signaling that to everybody that he works hard and exceeds even God's requirement. Now, kids in the room, kids at home, think of about it this way. Imagine if the likely scenario that your parents ask you to clean your room or tell you to clean your room. Does that ever happen? Probably. I tell my kids that all the time. I need to tell myself that. And then imagine that you clean your room, but then your sister or your brother cleans the, their room, cleans the bathroom, cleans the toilet, cleans the kitchen, then cleans the living room, and then picks up all the mesquite needles off the ground outside and then looks at you and says, Mom and Dad like me better because I did so much more than what they asked. That'd be crazy, right? That's what the Pharisee is doing right here, signaling that he exceeds even God's standard of righteousness. But what he's also doing is assuming that he can put himself in right relationship with God. That he's able to come to God in his own righteousness. What about the tax collector? Jesus says the tax collector stands far off, where he's less visible, realizing that he has no virtue worth signaling to other people. If anything, any type of signal he would be sending would make his life worse. He's a tax farmer. He farms people to get their money. He's in league with the oppressive Roman government. This is not a good guy. He's not a hero. He betrays his fellow countrymen and abuses the poor. For those of you into, who remember the 70s and 80s or into that type of TV and film, he's the American in the 70s and 80s who's spying for the Russians. He's the coyote, the human smuggler, who takes $3,000 to sneak a woman and her two children across the border and then tells him in the middle of the desert, give me your last $1,000 I'm leaving you here leaving her with nothing. He is the Ponzi scheme guy who convinces your grandmother to spend all of your grandfather's life insurance from when he passed away on this scheme and then runs off with the money, leaving her completely destitute and broke. This is not a good guy. He is somebody who has completely abused and betrayed the most vulnerable of society, and he is despised. How does this tax collector pray? He's unintentionally signaling to us that he realizes that he is not worthy. The reality of his sin weighs down on him. He can't even bring his gaze up like the way other people would pray. In that day, people would pray looking up and pray like this, with their arms and their heads up, and he couldn't even do that. We see from his posture how it's affecting him. Like women of the day who were physical when they would pray or when they would grieve. Women of the day when they would grieve, they would beat their chest as if to say, my heart is broken because my child has died or my husband has died or my neighbor's child has died. He beats his chest two-handed as if to say, I am brokenhearted because sin comes from my heart and I cannot stop it. It comes from inside me. Then he prays and quotes Psalm 51. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's signaling that he is not worthy and that he must rely on God's mercy. But he's not just relying on God's general mercy out there like some deism, like, oh, God's generally mercy. He is smelling the roasting lamb, like at a barbecue, like when you walk into a barbecue restaurant. 
He sees the blood of the sacrifice on the altar going out of the temple. And he sees that that's particularly for him. He sees that his sin is transferred to another. The word that he actually uses is the word derived from the word propitiate or atonement sacrifice, which means that God's wrath has been stopped because something else has covered over me. It's as if he is saying, God, have mercy and atone for my sins. He's understanding rightly the signals that God is sending to him. And he realizes that he has nothing of his own to offer, nothing to signal. And because he is relying on God's particular mercy for him, Jesus said that that man, the betrayer, the despised one, the unpopular one, the scam artist, the traitor, is the one that goes down to his house justified, right with God. So what do we do with all this? Jesus, Jesus sums up for self-righteous people like you and me like this. In the verse 14 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Because God is the only one who makes us righteous, who justifies us, Jesus is inviting us to humble ourselves. So how do we do that? Where do we do that? I think we can start by thinking about it two planes in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. So we're going to look at those two. The tax collector comes empty-handed. To come empty-handed before anybody is to humbly submit to their mercy. Whether it's in a TV show or I'm reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time, when somebody comes before a king, they remove their sword, sometimes hand it to the king, or they just come like this, and they're humbly submitting to the mercy of the one they're coming before. He also, so he comes empty-handed, not bringing a case for himself or against himself. All he does is come empty-handed. Some of us need to hear that first part, that we must lay down the case in favor of ourself. We need to really ask ourselves, what am I tempted to bring in my hands, signaling to God, hey man, I'm good. You and me, we're good because I'm good. What am I tempted to bring in my hands? It's not going to be simple things. It's going to be good things that are, that are virtuous, that are righteous, that are good to do as Christians like yours in my spiritual practice, like praying or reading the Bible or coming together to worship. It's going to be our intellectual curiosity, maybe, or our open-mindedness to ideas or our defense of the truth for the sake of the gospel. Others of us need to hear the second part and come empty-handed of the case against us. It's simple, so simple we miss it. The tax collector actually still comes. He's not saying, ah, I can't come. Here's all the excuses why God won't accept me. No, he comes completely empty-handed of any excuses and reasons that he can't come before God. Some of us need to ask ourselves, what in my conscience keeps me from coming before God? What am I holding on to? What am I ashamed of? What am I guilty of? Confess those things, but... Don't hold on to them. Lay them before God and open your hands to receive his mercy. Like the old hymn says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. 
We humble ourselves before God by emptying our hands, both the cases for ourselves and against ourselves. But we must also humbly submit ourselves or humble ourselves in front of other people. When we really, truly understand God's justification by grace for us, we should be compelled to humble ourselves before other people. At the end of the passage, it says, Jesus says that the Pharisee returned to his home. He went down to his house. That means that he went out in his daily life to interact with other people. Now, because that's a fictitious story that Jesus is telling to make a point, we don't actually know as to what happened to him. But in the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we see two other tax collectors that encounter God's mercy and their life is transformed. One of them we see just after this passage in Luke 19, a man named Zacchaeus. What do we know about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed into a sycamore tree. What else do we know? That he was a tax collector. And that he was despised for all the same reasons that I mentioned a few minutes ago. What happens to him when he encounters God's mercy through Jesus? It says it in Luke 19. I'm going to read it for us. Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods that I I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We don't get to see it happen to him, but we can trust that he kept his word, that he would not bring any defense for his wrongdoing as he came to other people, that he would admit it and seek restoration in his relationships and repentance and admitting and confessing that he was wrong and then doing what is needed to make the relationship right. That's humbling. Matthew is another tax collector that we encounter in the gospel that is transformed by his encounter with Jesus. Matthew was despised and rejected, and Jesus comes to him, and he's so transformed that it's, I find it interesting that the only gospel that, land, that really truly in detail talks about the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus sums up in to love your neighbor as yourself, is Matthew's gospel. That's not, maybe it's reading a little bit too far in it, but it's interesting that the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, is what Matthew keys on and what Jesus is teaching. Because that's such a humbling principle to live by. Because what it's doing is coming to other people saying, I'm not going to treat you the way that I think you deserve, and I'm not even going to expect for you to respond the way I want you to respond. I'm going to come before you empty-handed because I believe that God has treated me with mercy, I'm going to treat you with compassion and mercy as well. That's completely vulnerable, completely scary. It is completely humbling when we do that to other people. And when we struggle and fail to love well, we can realize that even those failures do not define us. And we can ask for forgiveness and receive Jesus as righteous and realize that we already have it. Christians. We're all lacking social interaction right now. It's not just me, even though I'm going to get overloaded with it this week on campus. You're starting as you're starting to enter back into parts of society. We're getting more interaction. But life is still difficult. But in God's providential curriculum, it seems extra difficult right now. For your church, 
at Holy Cross, for society as political season ramps up even more, all of the uncertainty of the pandemic and all the other things, it seems extra difficult. But that's not foreign to God because the God who created the universe set a plan into place to enter creation as the second person of the Trinity into a world that was filled with brokenness and difficulty. He knows what it's like to live in a broken and difficult and sin-filled world, though he lived without sin. And in his life, the second person of the Trinity was completely humble, living a perfect, virtuous life, righteous in his relationship with God, perfect in his loving relationship with other people, And then through his life and atoning death, he, the blameless, spotless lamb, became the substitute that took our sins and gave us his righteousness. His substitute for you, his substitute for me, for the people sitting next to you, whether it's sins of self-righteousness and virtue signaling and despising other people or sins of betrayal that we are too ashamed to admit, barely even to ourselves. He covers all of those things. The good news is that God doesn't just signal it to us. God made it happen for us. He accomplishes us and then he exalts us into right relationship with him. Imagine that if we as individuals, that we as a Christian community at Holy Cross, Believe this justification by faith just a little bit more. Imagine the freedom that we would have coming before God in worship week after week. Imagine the freedom of not having to virtue signal, not just to the people in this room, but to the people in the outside world. Imagine the freedom of bringing light and hope to a hopeless and dark world as we humbly love other people because God has loved us first. This is the freedom that the gospel brings. Will you rest in that with me?